Hello everyone, welcome back to our second session on our study of 1 John. Today we are going to be covering the first chapter, starting in verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 2. And last week, Isaiah did a great job of giving us an introduction to 1 John including the author, John the Apostle, and the context of the letter, and purpose, and key themes, and even an overview of the content. And if you remember Isaiah mentioning that in the book of John, there is a recurring theme. Uh, It's a series of tests of genuine fellowship, uh, both doctrinal and moral. Doctrinal meaning relating to beliefs, and moral relating to conduct. And today, we're going to spend some time on the first fundamental tests of doctrine, and that's our view of Christ, uh, the first four verses of chapter 1, and our view of sin, which is the remaining part of our text that we'll be examining today. Now, as we begin our study in First John, I want to remind us that the central focus of our study is Christ. There are a number of key themes in the book that Isaiah covered last week, namely fellowship, joy, avoiding sin, assurance of eternal life. All of these themes hinge on Christ, and he is the God-man who is the one basis of true fellowship, uh, true joy, and eternal life in Christ. This is something that we must not lose sight of as we dive into the text over the coming weeks. And to help us, John does us a favor by beginning his epistle with a laser focus on Jesus, the word of life. So let's pray and ask God to um, bless our time together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter uh, that we get to examine over the coming weeks. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word that is clear that you, uh, through the Apostle John, by your Spirit, gave us this truth. Help us, give us eyes and hearts uh, to be open to your truth, and that we would learn from it and uh, glorify you in that process. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In today's world, we constantly see confusion about Jesus, don't we? Distortions, inaccuracies, outright denials of the Jesus revealed in the Bible. We even hear that scripture is not ultimately knowable. This is nothing new. The Apostle John faced similar challenges in the first century uh, as he penned this letter uh, to set this record straight. He knew it was absolutely essential to get the Jesus question right. And, And that's where John begins with this letter. So let's read our passage for today. 1 John chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 2. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. 
This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. John begins his letter here in a very direct-to-the-point way, doesn't he? No greeting, no introduction. He just gets right to the point. And throughout this letter, we see John's devotion to the truth, to divine truth. Truth is an essential concept for John. Nearly half of all of its uses, that word truth, in the New Testament appear with John, 25 in his gospel and 20 in his letters. But at the same time, we also see him equipping his readers to discern error, the things that threaten the truth. The truth. His message is black and white. We see a number of contrasts throughout the letter. In chapter 1, which we'll cover today, we see light and darkness. In chapter 2, new commandment and old commandment, loving the Father and loving the world, Christ and Antichrist, truth and lies. Chapter 3, children of God and children of the devil, eternal life and eternal death, love and hatred. Chapter 4, true prophecy and false prophecy, love and fear. And chapter 5, having life and not having life. So a number of contrasts throughout this letter. And with the first four verses here in chapter 1, John begins with a prologue by putting before us several great truths or certainties about the life of Jesus, a life like no other. We learn that the person and work of Christ, the word of life, has five attributes or characteristics that are certain. And in verse 1, we see it begins, what was from the beginning? And the first certainty that we see here of the word of life is that the word of life is unchangeable. It's unchangeable. If we look at that first word, what, or in some translations, it's that which, it's a unique way to begin a letter. We would typically see a personal pronoun used, for example, with Paul's letters, but instead, John uses this pronoun, what, and it's a reference not just to Christ as a person, but also to the attributes and the characteristics which Christ possesses as the word of life. It's a collective reference for Christ and all that he encompasses and all that he has accomplished. Some Bible commentators say that uh, the word beginning here refers to eternity past, which is certainly true of Jesus, because in John 1, 1, we read, in the beginning was the Word. 
But others say this reference here refers to the beginning of the proclamation of the gospel. In the immediate context, it seems to fit more naturally uh, with the the beginning of the proclamation of the gospel. But either way, what we learn is that the message of redemption is unchanging. From the beginning, the proclamation of the gospel has been the same. Faith repentance, the kingdom of God being at hand, divine forgiveness, reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. And as we continue in verse 1, we see what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So the second certainty of the word of life here is that the word of life is historical. It's historical. John here is giving us an eyewitness account. This uniquely qualifies him to write this letter. As we see throughout the letter, John is very clear. There's no vague language or anything that's uncertain here. Remember at the time of John's writing this letter, there were early forms of Gnosticism that that were already threatening churches in the area. Its proponents denied the full deity of in the humanity of Christ, and by doing so, uh, they denied the gospel, the true gospel. They, they claimed to have special knowledge only available to the spiritual elite, out of reach to the common believer. And Gnostics also believed that the material world is evil, including our physical bodies. Now, I say all that because John directly addresses these false teachers by saying that experiencing Christ And his gospel is not some mystical, secret thing. John had experienced Christ through his natural senses and was an eyewitness to the Incarnation. Here he lists four ways that he perceived the word of life, Christ. One, he heard the Lord speak. This would be in parables, sermons, prayers, and no doubt there were private words of instruction and counsel from him as well. This term, have heard, is in the perfect tense, which means it indicates a completed occurrence in the past with an impact in the present. It's ongoing impact. Number two, he had also seen him. Note that he adds the words, with our eyes, to make it clear that this was a physical experience, not some mystical or spiritual experience that some may claim. Some of the false teachers at the time claimed that Jesus was not fully man. John observed him for three years with his normal eyesight. Then he takes the idea of seeing further by saying that he had looked at him. Now you might think, well, how is that different from seeing him? Well, this term indicates a long searching gaze. The same verb is also translated beheld, Elsewhere in Scripture, in John 1.14, the King James Version says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Guy Wood's commentary says, The word beheld, or looked at, indicates conscious and willful participation. It denotes more than mere seeing and suggests a steady and penetrating gaze designed to hold the object in view until all its characteristics are noted. Also inherent in the meaning of the word is the idea of contemplating with pleasure, 
looking with delight, finding satisfaction in the object thus contemplated. So this is an intentful look beyond just seeing. And then finally, John says that he had touched with his hands the word of life. Jesus used this same word in Luke 24, 39, after his resurrection. Touch me and see, because a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you plainly see that I have. John and the apostles would have touched Jesus as part of their companionship with him. John even described himself as one who leaned on Jesus' chest in John 13. And remember how Jesus encouraged Thomas to touch him after his resurrection? John 20, 27 says, Then he, Jesus said to Thomas, Place your finger here and see my hands, and take your hand and put it into my side, and do not continue in disbelief, but be a believer. Now note the progression of these four perceptions that we just covered. They move from passive observation to willing participation. Isn't that a picture of how we came to Christ? When we were first passive observers of Christ, but him calling us to himself by his saving grace, we become willing participants in his kingdom. And all of this is concerning the word of life. We previously discussed the purposes of this letter, the why, and here we see the subject of the letter, the what. The what is the word of life. And that is the person and work of Jesus Christ as proclaimed in the gospel. John MacArthur says, This is a message about God's revelation in Christ and God's revelation concerning Christ. That is to say, the true revelation of God in the incarnate word, in the true revelation of God in the written word. The word of life embodies Christ in the gospel of Christ. They are inseparable. Verse 2 here is a parenthetical phrase repeating the sense of verse 1, and it reveals why John and the other apostles were able to bear witness and declare Jesus as the word of life. We see it says, and the life was manifested. To manifest, uh, another word for this is to reveal. Some translations will say that. It's to make visible in the sense of revelation to make known something that was previously concealed. Remember, God did not reveal himself in human flesh until the incarnation, until Christ's earthly ministry. Because Christ was revealed or manifested, John had the privilege of experiencing him directly as he describes here in verse 1. This became the basis for his proclamation of truth. As we continue in verse 2 and into verse 3, it says, And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. So here, the third certainty of the word of life is that the word of life is communicable. It's communicable. John's experience was not just a private experience, but rather his privilege became the platform to bear witness of the truth and to proclaim the gift of eternal life in him. He didn't hold it just within himself. 
And here, as we remember, John was a true and credible witness. He, he was an apostle who had been with Jesus. We also see this kind of declaration with other New Testament authors. John Stott puts it this way, The historical manifestation of the eternal life was proclaimed, not monopolized. The revelation was given to the few for the many. They were to dispense it to the world. Christ not only manifested himself to the disciples to qualify them as eyewitnesses, but gave them an authoritative commission as apostles to preach the gospel. Now, continuing in verse 3, we read, So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So the fourth certainty of the word of life is that the word of life is relational. It's relational. Here uh, is a purpose statement that we find, the purpose of proclaiming what has been seen and heard, so that you too may have fellowship with us. John mentions fellowship four times in this letter, all in verses 3 through 7 of this first chapter. It's an important topic. The familiar Greek word for fellowship here is koinonia. And that speaks of sharing in common something that is significant and important. It's not really about social interaction per se, but rather a oneness or a partnership in a group of people who have the same beliefs and share common values and goals and convictions. Remember, John is writing this letter to believers. And here he's reminding them that as Christians, they not only have fellowship with each other, but more importantly, They have fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the basis of our fellowship with one another, is our fellowship first with the triune God. When you are saved, you are immediately placed in a relationship, a fellowship with God. And you also get a whole bunch of brothers and sisters as well, as we read in Revelation 7-9, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And it's also our brothers and sisters in our local church. Verse 4, we see him say, These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the fifth certainty of the word of life, that the word of life is joyful. It's joyful. Here we see the first purpose statement for this letter that John writes as he rounds off this prologue. John's message is one of transforming truth, and it's one that brings consummate joy and satisfaction and complete fulfillment that can never be lost. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. The apostles shared the heart of Christ for his people to the point that their own joy was bound up in the spiritual well-being of those that they were ministering to. And if John's readers would retain their true fellowship with God and fellow believers— No one would be happier than John. The statement's similar to one that he makes in 3 John, verse 4. I have no greater joy than this, 
to hear of my children walking in the truth. Here we see John as a spiritual father figure to the recipients of his letters. He's expressing his love and his concern for them. So that completes John's prologue. Now in this next section, beginning in verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2, John lays out fundamental principles or tests of genuine fellowship. Since fellowship is a key theme of John's letter, it's natural for him to begin here. As And, and as we step into this section, note where the focus begins. It's on God and his nature. It's not initially on man. To understand ourselves and others, we must first understand God. Then we'll be able to be effective in our fellowship with others. So our thinking about God must be right. We've got to get that right. And of course, we do that by examining his word. So verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. This is what John proclaimed in the prologue, what he had heard, seen, and touched. This is the message of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. The statement here is not God is a light, or even God is the light. It's simply God is light. It is his essence. He is of the character of light. This speaks to his holiness. He is pure, perfect, and utterly righteous. And throughout scripture, God and his glory are often described in terms of light. Remember during the Exodus, God appeared to the Israelites as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And when Moses came down from Mount Sinai after meeting with the Lord, his face glowed with a reflection of God's light. Psalm 104.2 says, The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. And at the transfiguration, remember Jesus manifested himself as light. Matthew 17.2 says, There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And John frequently described light, or described God as light, in his gospel. John 1, 4, 4 and 5 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. John three nineteen says, And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. And Jesus says himself in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. Here we see a definition of this light. It's, it's life. It's eternal life. God is the source of true light, and he bestows it on believers in the form of eternal life through his Son, who was the light incarnate. Now, Scripture reveals two fundamental principles that flow from the truth that God is light. One, light represents the truth of God. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. And 119.130 of Psalm says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And number two, 
Scripture links light with virtue and moral conduct. Paul tells the Ephesians in 5, uh, 8, and 9, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. These are critical in helping us understand how to distinguish genuine faith from a counterfeit. If one professes to possess the light, he will show it by devotion to truth and devotion to righteousness. And John will expound on this later in chapter 2. But those are two key parts here of the fundamental principles that are associated with the fact that God is light. It represents the truth of God and that uh, it's linked with virtue and moral conduct. Now, the remaining verses we'll examine this morning, verse 6 through uh, chapter 2, verse 2, we'll see John confronting three false ideas. And each idea has a statement from a false professor and then a response from a true or genuine believer. Each of these ideas is a subtle variation on the same theme. There were likely individuals in John's church that were claiming that they had an intimate walk with God, that their lives were unstained with sin. So let's start by looking at verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So here, the first statement about false professors is that false professors are in darkness. These are professors who ignore their sin as if it were not a reality to them. They claim to have fellowship with God, but it's meaningless if they continue to walk in darkness and are not repentant. The term walk here, it refers to a manner of life or conduct. This is not a one-time behavior. This is a pattern of life. In other words, these people here that he's talking about are not walking their talk. They're not following it up with actual action. Remember, James one twenty two says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers, who delude themselves. Jesus says in John 8:12, remember I am the light of the world. The latter part of that verse says, he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. It will show in his actions. John here he spares no punches. He says that the people who live in such a contradiction are liars and they don't practice the truth. And John MacArthur says, no matter what anyone claims for himself, the genuineness of faith can always be seen in one's life by the love of righteousness. Walking in darkness and not recognizing sin is antithetical, the opposite of loving righteousness. Now we look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So here, this is the believer's response to this. The the believer's condition here is one where true believers are cleansed. Here, John contrasts the 
previous verse and describes the manner of life or the walk of a true believer. The verb here, again, it indicates continuous action. Those who walk in the light, they do so because the power of God has regenerated them. They believe in a way that reflects the power of God's righteous life in them, as God himself is in the light, is what it says. The general pattern of their day-to-day actions and attitudes will be godlike. Now, such people will also experience a couple things, as it says here in verse 7. One, they'll have fellowship with one another as a part of their union with the triune God. This is communion with the saints, but not solely at a human level. It's because of each person's fellowship with God. It's a special kind of fellowship because of the relationship with God. And two, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians no longer sin. We, we know that. As long as we are in our fleshly bodies, we will not be perfect and we will sin. However, as a result of our salvation in Christ, his blood continually cleanses away every transgression. Sin can never change a true believer standing before God. That's a wonderful truth. But when we do sin, his blood continually cleanses away our transgressions as believers. Now, at the same time, remember Paul's admonition in Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So it's important to remember that this truth of cleansing that we have as believers is not an excuse or a license to sin. Continuing in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here, false professors are in deception. And here John addresses those who claim to be sinless as if they have reached a higher spiritual plane where sin no longer exists in their lives. Now, if these are professing professing Christians, they completely misunderstand their condition and the Spirit's work of progressive sanctification in their lives. With this claim, they're deceiving themselves, and the truth is not in them. It flies directly against John's claim that he made in the previous verse that says true believers are being cleansed from sin. Guy Wood says in a very short and uh, to-the-point quote, those who deny that they have sin add to the sin they already have and sin in so affirming. Verse 9 is the next comparison contrast. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here, true believers are confessing. This is one of the most well-known verses in this letter and one that uh, is often quoted and many times memorized. And some have interpreted this verse to mean that forgiveness is somehow conditional on our confession. 
for example, if believers confess, God will forgive, and if they don't confess, he won't forgive. However, the verb tense for this word, forgive, here, it indicates a past event, meaning that God's forgiveness is based on Christ's atonement on the cross. That's an important fact to remember. If we look at chapter 2, verse 12, John says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. So this leads us to look at this verse in a slightly different way. I think a more accurate way to look at this verse is that since believers are forgiven, they will regularly confess their sins. In other words, their forgiveness is not because of ongoing confession, but it's the other way. Their ongoing confession is because of their forgiveness. Believers are a confessing people because of their forgiveness that has already been established through their um, safe, through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Now, as the Holy Spirit sanctifies believers, He continually produces with them, within them, a hatred for sin. And that results in penitent hearts and a sincere acknowledgement of their sins. Just consider Paul, who said in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. The word here, confess, means to say the same thing. We're saying the same thing about our sins that God says. We're in agreement with him. So this is what walking in the light looks like. The, the light reveals the hidden things of darkness, and walking in the light involves continual, ongoing pattern of confession and repentance. That is the mark of a believer. And the more that we walk in the light, the more we're aware of our sin. And that is a good thing. But at the same time, the more we're in the light, the more we're growing and becoming more like Christ generally the less we will sin, but at the same time, we're more aware of our sin at the same. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, confession is essential. It means that we must remain open to the work of the light. We must let it search us. We must pull down the defenses, and we must come to the word honestly. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So here, this is the third um, comparison that John is making, or the, the, the third uh, contrast. Uh, false professors are those who defame God. This is similar to verse 8. Some interpret this to be Christians who are confronted with their sin and they deny it. And others say this is about people who claim to have never sinned. Well, either way, it's a lie, and it contradicts God's truth. True believers, however, when they fall into sin, they don't deny their sin. Instead, they openly and honestly confess it before the Lord and repent of it. And isn't it true, as we said, the more we walk in the light, loving and obeying him, the more we become aware of our sin. Now, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. My little children, 
I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Here, true believers are conquering. They're conquering sin. Here, John addresses his readers as his little children, a term of endearment and fatherly concern. He uses this term, little children, seven times in this letter. He's looking back at what he just wrote with the desire that they heed his words and that they don't sin. He's encouraging them as a father. However, he also makes it clear that we cannot be sinless in this life. He reminds us that if we do sin, and the indication here is more like, if anyone sins and it will happen, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ himself. The word advocate here means someone who comes alongside. As in a legal setting, this is the defender or counselor who comes to aid his client. And here Christ is our defender before God the Father. And he is solely qualified because he is the propitiation for our sins. And this is a crucial and glorious doctrine of the Christian faith and core to the gospel. Propitiation means appeasement or satisfaction. And Christ's sacrificial death on the cross satisfied the demands of God's justice. And it appeased his holy wrath against believers' sins. The wrath that should have been ours was poured out on Jesus. It is a glorious truth central to the gospel. And John concludes this verse saying that this is a universal offer to all mankind. Anyone who repents and believes on Christ will be saved. And what's more, as a result, no sin can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans eight thirty nine. Isn't the gospel amazing? Isn't that such good news? So, as we conclude, there are a few takeaway items here to remember. First, Jesus Christ is the God-man who is the one basis of true Christian fellowship and eternal life. John sets that record straight at the very beginning. Secondly, true believers recognize and confess their sins. We are to keep short accounts. As believers, we are to be confessors as well of our sins. And third, Jesus is our atonement and our advocate who reconciles us to God and sends us out to share the gospel message with the world. That is wonderful news. And then lastly, just a couple questions to meditate on. One, do I have my doctrine right? In order to pass these tests of fellowship that we discussed, we must first have a right understanding of Christ and a saving relationship with him. It starts there. And secondly, do I acknowledge and confess my sins? As believers, it's a natural and right thing to do. And remember, we have an advocate who is our propitiation, Jesus Christ himself. 
And that's something that we can be eternally grateful for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious truth of your saving grace through the propitiation of Christ, taking the wrath that was due us, putting it on Christ, and bringing us in a relationship with you. Thank you for that. And thank you, Father, for the clarity of this text, which reminds us to, as believers that we are to be confessing of our sins and reminding ourselves of the work that you have done for us. May we keep short sin accounts and that we would encourage one another along the way. And thank you, Father, for giving us uh, your truth And may it work in our lives that we may glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.